Ah, welcome back, everybody. It's Everyone Talks to Liz. I was thinking about this. No matter what profession you're in or or dream of entering, there's always that holy grail, a peak, a position, a a sort of best-in-class company that when you finally get there, you know it's what you and everyone in that industry aims for. Uh, You know, I'm thinking about 1988 when I was a weekend night reporter in Columbus, Ohio, covering fender benders and... I don't know, two alarm fires, ice storms, mayonnaise festivals. I always dreamed of making it to the network, getting to New York and going national. I mean, it's it's different for every industry, but for stand-up comics, it's landing a spot with Saturday Night Live's not ready for primetime players. But, you know, sometimes when you reach whatever goal you're aiming for, it turns out that it's a base camp of an even bigger and more exciting mountain of a career. My guest today knows all about it. See, he did make it to Saturday Night Live, and yes, it was only the beginning. Here to talk about his amazing career that still has people laughing around the world is actor, comedian, writer, producer, and yes, SNL alum, Rob Schneider. Hi, Rob. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Liz. I appreciate it. (laughs) I'm thrilled to have you on the show because... I watched you. We're exactly the same age, okay? 1963, right? That's when you were born? Yeah. yeah. So I was definitely watching Saturday Night Live when you were on it for four years in the 90s. But you grew up in San Francisco. When did you realize you were funny? Well, um, I, I what I was was I was so excited about things that made me laugh that it was just, I, I I couldn't imagine myself doing anything else. I mean, my mother's Filipino. My mother was Filipino. My dad was Jewish. So it was, that was a unique perspective. <laughs> yeah. And Asians. I mean, it's very interesting now. Asians are the inconvenient minority, Liz, because they are a minority. Uh, and there's, uh, but you can't say that they're being oppressed by the white, um, by the so-called uh, white, um, uh, you know, system. Yeah. In, in, in injustice. Mm-hmm. It's just they're doing better than anybody else. And, and Filipinos specifically are like second on that list. So what, what you have is you have people who understand the opportunities that America presents uh, to them because they've been in every crappy dictatorship and every crappy corrupt. I mean, just completely like our system has corruption in it, but not to the blatant level where you have no chance at things in these other countries, whether right. it's. And I'm sorry, the Philippines is one of them. It's just, it's just, it's hard to rise above that decades and decades of unbelievable corruption. And uh, so the Asians will come here and they'll realize the opportunity is incredible and they thrive. So that was one thing that was the example of my mother, who my mother was the one who literally her and her sister in the Philippines found money because you don't get free school in the Philippines. You got to pay. They found money that the Japanese buried in a cave. I swear to God. Come on. And they also they also found these um, what she thought were valuable, and they she thought they were like metal pineapples. And she took them back to her, her brother-in-law, who was a Japanese Filipino, um, Os- Oscar Formoso, and he said, um, "Don't touch those. Those are hand grenades." Oh. So the dream could have been over right there. So you have you no. Know, so there, there was the opportunity. My mother seized it and realized like how amazing what the opportunity was in, in America for people. And I, when you do have that dichotomy, when you've had that experience of uh, of 
what truly what true oppression is, what an incredible, absolute, mm. um, you know, dictatorships are. Then you realize the opportunities that the, this amazing country and perfect, but the, it's still incredible opportunities that we have. And then they'll thrive because that's all they need is opportunity. And like the, the Asian Americans, and I know that just, you know, it was an incredible victory to take away affirmative action, which was, you know, no one's well, wanting to take away a hand up from anyone. But the difference in Asians don't, aren't asking for a hand up. They're not asking for a hand down. They're, they're just asking, don't slap my hand away. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we'll be right back. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listen Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So, Rob, did you get your humor from your mom or, or your Jewish dad? Well, my dad, my dad had was really funny, and my dad had you know loved comedy. So getting his attention was making him laugh. My mother had good timing, but I had no idea what anything meant. I mean, she didn't. I mean, English not first language, you know. So she would laugh. She had great time. She'd go, ha, 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 ha. What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean by that? And Robert, what does that mean? So, but she she got around to it. She understood, you know. And it also made my my humor more physical. So that you could, the idea was like when I was doing comedies for Disney back in 20 years ago, it was Deuce Bigelow or the Hot Chick or I did the Animal for Sony. Right. The idea was to make it so physical that people, you know, didn't have to even hear the dialogue. They would understand what was funny just by the physicality of the actors. Tell me about your first time on stage doing stand-up. How old were you? Where were you? Were you nervous? I was very nervous, but the thing about it was I was 15 my dad, I, I just learned, you know, this is a couple of years after I saw Steve Martin. And then I found out there was a comedy club called the Holy City Zoo in San Francisco. And they would let, and I found out they would let anybody up on a Monday night if you showed up and signed up. Right. But so I said, Dad, you know, they'll let anybody up if you sign up. And he just said two words, let's go. Aww. So th- that was it. You know, I took my trombone. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. <laughs> and I went, and, you know, it's. It, it was a totally uncomfortable thing because, you know, when people go to, you know, sm- back then, smoky nightclubs to drink and hear dirty jokes, they, they're not, they, they don't want to be, they don't want to see a child in front of them. Because it reminds them how irresponsible, how irresponsible they're being and, and that they're just drunks and trying to have a good time. And, and all of a sudden, there's a reminder right in front of their face of like, this is what you're ignoring back home or whatever. That's my, that's my take on it now. But, you know, then after a while, you know. What well, did I you make them laugh? Did you bomb? No, of course. I was just uncomfortable. It was just, <laughs> it was just a, like, ooh, there's a child in here, and we're drunk. You know? <laughs> so I, I remember just everyone being uncomfortable. And then um, 
I started doing it a little bit more at 16, 17. I was doing it more. And then you start looking more normal. You start, start, you start looking like an adult by the time I was 19, you know. And if you're Asian, a half Asian like I am, then you look really young. You know, you look like, uh, as Dana Carvey says, an embryo in shoes. You know, so, you know. so, but then I got... I got more comfortable as it went, and it becomes an art form. You know, it takes a while. Sure. And, you, know, you, you don't know what to talk about in the beginning, and then you're just trying to separate yourself from, because there's so many comedians back then in and the early 80s. How did Jerry you separate Seinfeld, yourself? Well, well, exactly. Jerry Seinfeld said, in 1975, <laughs> there were 40 <laughs> comedians, and eight of them were good. In 1985, there were 4,000 comedians, and eight of them were good. <laughs> So I said, you know, the only way I'm going to be able to stand out is if I talk about things they can't talk about, which is like my car, my mother, my Filipino mother. Who's going to talk about that? Right. You know, and then like my, my brother was a surfer. He talked about that. And so you just come up with certain things. And then luckily, you know, I was you had like the, the great comedians would still come into town. And then if, if, you know, if you were lucky enough to get to open for them, you'd learn things or you go watch them. Jerry Seinfeld was nice enough, you know. Back then, he, there was a club called Cobbs, and he would come and make, like, at that time, ungodly money, like 10000 for the week. Mm-hmm. You know, 40 years ago, that was like, oh, my, what, 10000 for a week? And we'd making $200 a week as comedians, you know. But he was, like, the biggest. He did, like, 40 Tonight Shows by then. And he would sit and say, listen, you got to take all the swear words out. <laughs> and then if it's not funny without the swear words, it's not funny. <laughs> and it was just like, he had somebody would tell you that. And then Jay Leno would say, hey, listen, kid, how much, how much time you got? How much time you got? And I said, about eight minutes. He said, good, you know, eight minutes. I said, you know, most comedians, you ask how much time they got. I got two hours. I can't have any material. And I said, you know, you, 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 said, you, know, you need to have five minutes of kills every time, anywhere, anytime, any place you go, anytime you perform. Or you have nothing. All you need is 20 minutes to become a star. So I listened to what he said. A year later, I had five minutes, and I did that on the, that killed, and I did that on the David Letterman show. And then that was, I was 20, you know, 22. Or and the next wow. thing I know, a couple of years later, I was within 24 months, I was on Saturday Night Live. Let's talk about Saturday Night Live. Did you have to audition, oh, or had God, they seen your stuff? Years ago, Liz. My goodness. <laughs> it's 30 years ago. I, I feel like I was just like, it was like high school. It was great. I loved it, and it's a great place to start, mm-hmm. and it's a great place to... You know, the, the thing about Saturday Night Live is the best description is Jim Downey, who's the real genius of Saturday Night Live, is a man named Jim Downey. He's the head writer and producer. He was there for many, many, many years. He's the guy who wrote, Jane, you ignorant slut. Oh, sure. And this guy is a genius. And he said, the best description is Saturday Night Live is a very good restaurant in an amazing location. Okay. But literally has no competition. And they would, And sometimes they serve up amazing food. You know, so it was just a great place to, if you had an idea Tuesday, you'd find out Saturday if it was funny. And if it was Sunday, people would be repeating it, whatever. And so that was at its best. That's what SNL is. And it's a great starting ground for comedians. If you look at, you know, the best comedians of the 20th century, best comedy actors have come out of there. Didn't you have to sort of fight for oxygen, though? I mean, pitching characters and sketches. That's That's like... I mean, now you realize how fair that was. I mean, at the at the time, it's like I realized early on when I was there. It's like, hey, listen, anything I write gets read in front of everybody. How fair is that? Most of Hollywood, you read it and then no one ever sees it, or you you write for a TV show, maybe they'll somebody look at it or change it. Here's something: if I wrote it, it gets read by the cast in front of everybody. And if it, you know, some people are more favored than others. 
And like, you know, some people, I got movies coming out, whether it was Mike Myers or Dana Carvey with Wayne's World or, or what have you. Those were the ones that people would push a little bit more. But you still had an opportunity to get read in front of everybody. If it got laughs, chances are you would get on. And if that worked, then they did it work. So it was an incredibly liberating and uh, liberal place. Uh, to to do uh, you know work as a young as a young artist. Well, it felt like just a bunch of friends, almost a moment in time where you say, "I want to remember this because this is really something special." When you got a feature film, uh, which one made you feel like, "Okay, I have my own trailer"? They're they're telling me that I get to go first in line for the, the craft services, the food. I mean, what was that moment? Well, my goodness. I just, uh, you know, I mean, I remember arriving on a set. I mean, there was no, I had no lines. They just said, you come up with stuff. And it was Sandra Bullock is the one who greeted me out in front of the trailer. Wow. And she had just replaced another act, actress on a movie with Sylvester Stallone called Demolition Man. Sure. And she was doing a Stallone impression. Like, hey, Rob, nice to see you. Welcome to the show. <laughs> and that was that's the first, you know, she only talked like Sly. What am I doing? And... I just remember thinking, what a cool, beautiful young lady who's really funny. And that really kind of launched her. And then the next movie she did was, she said, I don't know if this is going to be, I went and visited her on the set and um, she was just starting. And I said, who is, what, what's this movie? He said, well, it's either going to be really good or a real piece of crap. And he said, I will say Keanu Reeves works really uh, hard. Oh, I said, what was the movie? He said, well, I don't know if it's going to be good or not. He said, it's about a bus if it goes under 50 miles an hour, it blows up. And I said, good luck with that. <laughs> And we both laughed, and then it became a big hit, and God bless her, you know. And that was very much the start. But you really do need somebody to take a, a chance on you when it comes to feature films. And you do, you do, you do. And but the thing is, you have to, and then you you have to come up with an idea. I remember, like, because at that time, you know, he didn't have the power to just get anything done and hire all his friends. Uh, Adam Sandler, but he said, just write something and I'll, and I'll see if I can produce it, you know? And so I said, I don't know what to write it, but he said, we'll figure it out, you know, just figure it out. So I was watching, you know, uh, TV that night, you know, I, I'm saying I got to figure something out. And I, and I was flipping the channel. This is back in cable. We were still watching regular TV. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm flipping the channels and all of a sudden I see Richard Gere in this movie. And somehow, uh, you know, these beautiful women American like they need to hire guy to have to, to uh, you know, um, you know, to sleep with them or whatever. And I said, you know, that doesn't seem like any beautiful woman I've ever known in my life. I said, they can get any guy they want. And I said, who are the real women that need to, you know, need help? And so that was it. That was, it was about two seconds of an idea. Then I started writing it. And then I remember Adam read it and he was laughing so hard. He said, I can't believe no one ever gets me scripts like this. And he was just laughing his, his butt off. And then that was, a, that was Deuce Bigelow. He produced it. And then we had a ball making it. And then we did a few and, you know, um, you know, the thing about it is people ask, you know, you know, like, you know, why does he put you on these movies? Because you have a trust in it. And, oh, and sure. it's very critical to like, if two things, if it's not working, let's fix it right away with no ego. And a trust, like, I think you should try this without having to talk somebody into doing something. If you've been working together for 20 years already, 15 years, then you already have um, trust in it and you're going to do things. And then if it ain't working, you'll fix it. And without an ego. And if it is working, you work even more and make it even better and make it great. And so ad-libbing doesn't come from 
a script that's um, not working. Ad living comes from a script that is working that you could build on top uh-huh. of. It. And so you know they would be able to you know do things to make each other laugh on set. And most of the time it stayed in the script if it was, if it made him laugh or made me laugh. You remember the old days where you were making two hundred a week and you were scrimping and saving. Today we're facing yeah. this actor strike along with the writer strike, and the studios making heck of a lot of money. They're looking out for their interests. The actors... They're, they're crying poverty. The, the, the studios are crying poverty. And truthfully, they are still... I mean, the stock up for Netflix isn't what it used to be, but it's still up, you know... Um, oh, it's doubled to, over the past year. That's for sure. Yeah, it's up over, it's up over uh, 60%. Mm-hmm. So maybe more. Well, it, 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 the 52-week you know, um, high was 200 bucks. It's now well above 400 So... Yeah, and, and uh, God bless them. But... They, you know, we're not asking for equal parity. We're just asking to to give actors, and not even top. We're not talking about, you know, the Sandra Bullocks. We're not talking about the Rob Schneiders. We're not talking about. We're talking about the average actor who makes twenty seven thousand dollars a year or less, about twenty six thousand and change. And we're talking about Bob Iger who makes twenty seven thousand dollars a day. And I think CEO of Disney. Don't don't take away the opportunity for actors to at least have an opportunity to make a living. We want to continue to eat and we want our, our fellow actors, and most of them are unknown, and they're trying to build their way, build a career, give them an opportunity so that they can make a living at this. They most of them have other jobs. The studios think you can be possibly mm-hmm. not entirely replaced, but reused as artificials, artificial intelligence, where an actor would get paid for a single day and then yep. the studios want to be able to reuse that image without reimbursing said actor. Well, they do want to do that. They, they've actually said that out loud. That's one of the things they want. And um, what do you, you think know, of the, that? Whether it's, you know, the, the, somebody in our executive, the Screen Actors Guild, uh, said, well, they want to use it forever. And I don't know if that's true. But they definitely want to use it for the run of the series. So basically, you get paid for one day. This is the guy getting 26000 a year. He's going to get paid for one day, and that's it. And then they're just going to keep his image, maybe change it slightly, his T-shirt or whatever, and then use it. And that's so he will no longer be able to have even an opportunity to make a living. And Let he will me not be play devil's advocate, image. and I'm on your side. Believe me, I grew up in L.A. I'm friends with a lot of the yeoman theater actors. Forget television actors. My mom was a theater actress, so I know the, the struggle. But if I were on the other side, they may say... Well, what do you think the modeling industry does in the magazine industry? They take one picture of Christy Brinkley, and they can use it over and over again without having paid her well, beyond the day she well, worked. The, the thing is, there's gonna, you're still going to have your superstar models, but you are no longer going to have the average model. And truthfully, even commercials, you're going to have you're going to have fake people. And you're not going to be able to stop that. At a certain point, you have technology that is uh, going to surpass. Just like the typewriter's gone, you're going to have that. And the Screen Actors Guild and the uh, AFTRA, um, which is the same guild, mm-hmm. uh, the, these actors are you're going to have to deal with that. I mean, you can't. We can't go to like you know, in 1898 and say, listen, you know, people were. Uh, he said, listen, we've we've got. Um, I know you've got these things called automobiles, but we have this horse and buggy we still want to use. I mean, at a certain point, it's going to it's going to no longer be viable. And so that's a fact. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be eliminating a lot of actors and it's going to be eliminating models. And that's it. 
and it's over. The cat's not out of the bag. It's completely out of the bag. It is those days are over. However, for still the opportunity in a live action to uh, take somebody's image and and to say that you can own it in this, in essence for that series and not compensate that particular person for their, mm-hmm. I would say the most valuable intellectual property they have, their own image. That 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 seems. Um, it just seems uh, unfair, unfair and un-American to be able to just essentially steal them. We could talk on and on about the, the right of a company to say things that they feel are important to their employees, but especially when it is great actors who make them so much money. So how do you think this ends, Rob? Well, I, I think what's going to happen is they're either going to break our union, which is their idea, they're going to, it wouldn't take much. I mean, I really don't think, if you keep us out for a year, we're over with. Then the union's broken. That's hmm. it. I don't think um, it's in their interest to do that. But I do think, uh, I do think you, you can feel from Bob Iger. And that's why I'm so glad that he spoke up the other day. I don't think he realized he was going to make <laughs> the headlines with, his, um, with how cold his statement was. Um, about the average working actor, you know, having he said they were being unrealistic. That is the quote with their yeah. demands. And, uh, yeah, and this is coming from a guy making twenty seven thousand uh, dollars a day. I think the average American could say that's a bit much. So what happened was in 19, I guess, during the Reagan administration is when you had, you know, unions that were broke. I mean, for every great thing you can say about Ronald Reagan, uh, when he broke that union... Air traffic controllers. um, The air traffic controllers. Mm -hmm. I mean, he busted it. That was it. It was done. And then you had... um, And then really when you stopped keeping up, when the um, auto workers were still making good money and the automobile industry was still doing well, and the average auto worker was making in the $42 an hour, Mm -hmm. they were still doing well. When we decided to no longer keep up payment with inflation, that's when that money ballooned to um, to the CEOs, where they started making hundreds of millions of dollars, which is outrageous. And, and, it, and it only behooves, I, I, and this is a really important point to make, it only behooves America to have a vibrant middle class. You don't want to be Venezuela with the really rich and then the bitterly poor with nothing in between. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. Aside from the strike, well beyond that, what do you say to up-and-coming comics or people who dream of making it how you have made it? What's your number one piece of advice? Two words. Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan's a stand-up comedian. He did game shows. He worked as a writer on TV series. He did the uh, news radio. He um, he decided to take control of his own career. He did stand-up every night. He did his own podcast. He decided to be curious. He's, he's also an incredible athlete. He was like a champion. Uh, I think it was Rhode Island, and he was like the best, you know, for his weight, the best uh, wrestler in that division. He decided to ask questions and be curious, and he became like our Walter Cronkite. And I don't say that lightly. He's the most important journalist in the world, and he's a stand-up comedian. So this is somebody that invented this, and a self-made man who is a comedian and did this. And then also, you know, he's a UFC. He's become interested in doing other things. 
And he he has single-handedly opened the door to show the possibility for other, whether it's actors, whether it's other comedians, mm -hmm. to the potentiality of your own talent and Got how it. hard you want to work, how interested, how you need to stay. The most important thing in creativity is to stay excited Got it. and keep excited and stay curious. Perfect ending. Rob, thank you for joining us on Everyone Talks to Liz. This has been... That's so interesting, and I so appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. All the best. We'll do this again, all right? Absolutely. You got it. Rob Schneider and gang, thank you, as always, for listening. We are back on the air, as always, Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Claim and Countdown. And again, I love you for tuning in. Thank you so much. Spread the word. Want to listen ad-free? You can do it with a Fox News Podcasts Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And then Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.